Hi, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our heart and mind can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sincorn and Adrian Cherulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana, and we've gone pulpit to podcast. And in this week's episode, we are continuing our discussion about the book written by Frank Viola, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. And Pastor Dan, to start today, I would like to um, just read like a little bit of the start of your sermon notes. It's a direct quote from Frank's book, and this is specifically found on page 150. I thought it was really great, and I thought this was a great place for us to start today. So here it goes. It says, quote, Many Christians today know Jesus as their Savior. Some even possess the joy of salvation, especially after they first trusted Christ. But many, if not most, are living defeated, frustrated lives. This is because they have never fully submitted themselves to Jesus as Lord. When the Lordship of Christ is established in life, it brings with it both power and liberty. In this connection, if the gospel of the kingdom was preached and received by even a quarter of those who identify themselves as Christians today, it would solve countless problems. It would take the Christian life out of the realm of being just another segment of acceptable Western or Eastern social life, and it would make it what it truly is, a foreign element to this planet, an enemy to all that is not of Christ on the globe. Boy, that's just kind of a mic drop moment, isn't it? Yep. Um, And, And it was, I believe, the first time in the whole series that I did a direct quote. Really? You know, I, I've been paraphrasing because I thought, well, you know, people don't really want to hear me read the book to them or even read large segments of the book to them. That's not preaching. Yeah. But when I got to this point in the process, it felt like we need to just kind of acknowledge what this book is about and what the author is driving at. And so who better than he to say so? And that's why I did that. Yeah, and I think some of the points in your sermon really hit to the core of this thing. Like, what does it even mean to be a Christian? And we talk a lot. We talk a lot about what it means to be a Christian, but practically, in our lives today, what does that look like? And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. I think a lot of people, um, like I'm thinking of a personal situation in my life recently um, that someone actually shared with me kind of personal but you know when it's like it's like a first cousin removed sort of situation where it's like still personal but not totally happening to you anyway um, but they told me about how uh, one of their family members had actually like sued them previously um and they were just really hostile in the whole situation and it was just clearly like the enemy right yeah and how they really wrestled with trying to respond to that situation of like okay well i'm a christian but what does that even mean when i'm facing the enemy and the enemy looks like a family member Mm. what is the christian thing to do and that is a question that plagues a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Um, something that is, has been coming up more in my life recently, too, personally, not the whole removed thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's like, what does Jesus say? Do we know his heart and mind? Is he the Lord over our lives? And if so, 
how do we respond in these situations? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it becomes harder when it's people we're close to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I thought your sermon did a great job at like kind of the practical tactical, like what does it look like to be a Christian? How do we respond in the fruits of the spirit yeah. in our lives? Um, and this, this person just to not leave you all on a cliffhanger. Cause I know you want to know how this ends. This person, um, had to sit in trial and look these people in the face and they wound up getting through it and being okay, but decided that this is a toxic relationship. I can no longer trust you and you're not going to be in my life anymore. Respectfully, you know, I'll talk to you and I'll see you, but we're not going to have this close relationship because you seriously betrayed me. Um, and, and another one of their family members thought differently they thought to be a Christian, what that looked like was we need to keep inviting them and welcoming them and being kind to them because that's what Christians do. Mm-hmm. So it was very just a, a practical life situation that I thought I'd bring to the podcast today. Well, I just I have one thought in particular that I think that, that has come to mind. And it's as you were saying that I was thinking, but this this Jesus we follow is the guy who said, bring the gospel to the people. When he sent out the 70 the first time, he said, you know, bring them the gospel, tell them the good news. But if they don't want anything to do with you, then shake the dust of their town off your feet and move on. You know, which which is neither provocative or like indifferent. It's it's not like, I mean, it's just, it's very matter of fact. It, he isn't saying, you know, <laughs> drop your drawers and moon them on the way out of town, right? <laughs> he, he's not saying, you know, turn around and flip them the bird. You know, he just says, if they reject you, they're rejecting me. So just move on, you know, just leave them behind, you know. And dusty feet figure so big in scripture in the, in the New Testament, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's jesus washing the feet and all of that so it's very sort of emblematic of jesus to say look if they if they reject you just shake the dust of their town off your feet and you literally could do that like you you could get to the edge of town and go i'm done with this and and see it falling off of your feet you know and and and, but but he's not saying that there's anything violent or or judgmental about it you just told them you know, I remember I used to sell things for a living for years. And, you know, I had friends in high school that said, well, you'd probably be a preacher or a salesman or a politician. Well, I want nothing to do with politics. And I have been a sales guy and now I'm a preacher. So they were right. Um, and one of the things I remember from when I sold things was is that you had to learn, you know, if, you, if you're sensitive selling stuff for a living is very scary because a lot of people say no (laughs) and you have to remember they're not rejecting you they're rejecting what you're offering them it's vital you know that you remember that there's in a retail environment people come in a lot of times because they already have some intention to buy something but when i was doing outside sales i sold truck stuff big truck like semis and that kind of thing construction equipment and i would go to customers who weren't looking to buy anything and i was just showing up and i might have a relationship with them that meant that 
while I'm there, we might do some business. But sometimes I wanted to see if I could get them to buy more or to buy something different. And sometimes I was successful and sometimes I wasn't. And I had to know when I didn't succeed that it wasn't me they rejected. Now, technically, it might be that I presented it poorly, but they're still rejecting what I'm offering because I presented it poorly. Mm. So we have room for improvement when we're sharing Christ with people. But at the same time, it's still Christ they're rejecting when you're presenting Christ. Now, a lot of people get into trouble because they try to present church or they try to present an ideology or a religion. And even then, you have to say, well, they're rejecting what I'm offering. But when you offer them Christ and they reject Christ, then they really are rejecting Christ, which means nothing in the long run because they might accept him the next time he's offered. So you just keep going. So when Jesus says, shake the dust off, he doesn't mean anything other than that. He's not saying you failed. He's not saying they failed. He's saying today they didn't want what you were selling. So you just keep going. And I think it's really important because part of being an effective representative Christ is to have a gentle spirit. And it isn't a combative spirit and it isn't a confrontational spirit or a spirit of violent speech. It's just it's just a spirit that says, I, I have nothing to take from you. I only want to give you something. And uh, this week in the message, we're going to take a break from the insurgents to talk about our annual uh, second mile giving emphasis it used to be called missions giving, you know, but um, to kind of tie it in with what we've been talking about, I will mention to people that it's still about asking people to taste and see that this is good. And honestly, I'm going to, here's a sneak peek because there's a, a uh, a uh, illustration that I chose because uh, you know we've all been to those warehouse stores where the sweet old ladies are giving out samples right and if you and I are in the warehouse store we're not shopping together but you're nearby and 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 I taste the sample and I go oh that is really good and then you walk up and you say what is it and and I say well you know it's it's uh, uh, lemon squares and oh my goodness it's delicious here try this and I give it to you and you're already intrigued because it sounded so good when I was eating it and I invited you to taste and see that it was good so why wouldn't you you know and and you know unless you say well I have an allergy to nuts does that have nuts in it you know but otherwise is a perfectly natural and rational thing for us to do when we encounter something good is to tell other people about it. And that's the gentle spirit of the Christian believer sharing their faith with others, you know? Um, so I don't know how I wandered there from, from your illustration, but, but I think what it gets down to is you're, you're talking about a family member who's have, uh, having a difference with the other family member and and I don't think Jesus asks us to do unnatural things. I, I that's a difficult statement because I often tell people that you'll know you're a Christian when you're doing things that don't make sense to the world. Hmm. But at the same time, it's not uncommon for Christians 
to encounter situations where the thing you should do is exactly what seems natural. Like, like, I don't think I'm saying that very well, but there's nothing wrong with shaking the dust off your feet and saying this is an unfruitful relationship. This is a relationship that will only cause pain. This is a relationship that will only cause hardship. You know, I, I personally think that there are moments in everybody's life when that kind of thing happens. And, you know, I'll speak to the person who's been uh, contemplating a divorce or something because, you know, I it's been well longer than you've been alive when I got divorced after a very brief marriage in my early adult life. And for me, it was a terrible experience for, for both of us, but at least we don't have children or anything. You know, we pretty much just got married and then realized that it was a mistake and then didn't stay married and, you know, we went our separate ways. But what I would say is, is that Christians will often try to be God's law and interpretation and they'll try to make it sound like you're supposed to do things that don't make any sense because they really don't make any sense. You know, um, I want to salvage that because I don't like where I went with that. I think I want to try to go back and clear one thing up. There's a difference between being a Christian believer, born again, and interacting with other born again believers and being of the flesh and of the world and interpreting things from that point of view. And then there's this sort of continuum where we are very immature Christian believers or we're very, um, what would you call a person who's not a Christian believer, but they're close to becoming one, you know? So there's like this timeline and the conversion points right in the middle of this line. You know, so I got this horizontal line and on one side you have your life as a non-Christian um, and then you have your life as a Christian and, and you know, the more you progress in one, the further you go from the other. And so I think there are people who are right on the cusp of becoming committed Christian believers and there are people who are right over that and they have a lot of growing up to do yet. So we have to make certain distinctions when we're talking about how to interpret things based on where you are on that spectrum of Christian personhood, you know? If you're non-believer and you're yoked unevenly to a believer, which is something scripture speaks to, then whether it's in a marriage covenant or some other kind of covenantal relationship, which could be family or extended family, um, there's going to be tension because you're unevenly yoked. And it could be because of the extent to which one person is really in, in a sanctified state versus someone who is not even a believer yet, hasn't even become a Christian believer. And so the way you interpret things is always going to be affected by that. Is that making sense? It is, yeah. So when you talk about your relatives, for example, or these people you knew who are relatives, that that I think it's immature and a little bit legalistic for someone to say, you should try really hard to just be the better person and all that, you know, and and 
I think that that what Jesus would say is, is well you you are trying to do something that isn't making sense like like you know why would you keep beating your head against the wall um, and still don't like the way I'm going with this but I said something in the sermon Sunday that I really liked and I I want to come back to it because it was one of those things where if I was listening I would have written it down of course you got to understand the process of preparing sermons and preaching them is a sort of receiving as well as a preparing to give you receive so that you can give Mm -hmm. you know and so I received this before I gave it and it's this idea that God isn't so much concerned about how effective you are at whatever he's asking you to do as he is about how his relationship with you is working through all of that you know I don't think God cares one way or the other whether you succeed at something you think you're doing for God. Or even if you're mature enough to believe that you're doing it with God. He still doesn't measure your failure or success based on something that you can identify as failure or success. Mm. I think he rates your performance based on how your relationship with God matures in that process. You know, are you more dependent on God now than you ever were? Are you more in love with God now than you ever were? Um, Do you see the beauty of our Lord more plainly than you did before? Then it was a good experience. It was a successful experience. So does it really matter in the kingdom whether you remain in a pleasant and redeeming relationship with somebody who's wronged you? I don't know, probably not. On the other hand, if your relationship with God is negatively affected by your present interpretation of that experience, God's going to have an issue with that. And so I think that it's, you know, I'm always talking about like the worst thing any believer can do is to get hung up on themselves and think this is about them or to take themselves too seriously or whatever. It's like that's one of the worst things you can do to your Christian walk. And so you know you're getting it right when you're more God and others oriented than self-oriented. But then I have to throw a wrench in the works and say, and yet God is so deeply concerned about God's relationship with you. And so God isn't asking you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you because that's the thing that he wants you to accomplish. He's saying that because that's the key to affecting your relationship with God in a way that increases your sanctification and your oneness with the Lord. You know, is that making sense? Mm -hmm. You know, that nothing God ever asks you to do is about you and your relationship with the world. It's really about you and your relationship with God and this desire for God to have that intimacy with you. And the ultimate goal, using Frank's other materials as a reference, the ultimate goal is to be the bride of Christ. You know, the ultimate goal, and and, and this is an image that's hard for us. To, you know, I remember when you were a bride, you know, I know what that looks like, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I had the privilege of, of presiding at your wedding to, to Anthony. But 
but when we're thinking about our relationship with Christ in the future, it's hard to put our minds in, you know, like how, how do all of us serve as the bride of Christ? But what I think you could do if you're trying to find a way to kind of interpret that in a, in a you know, in a way that gives you some sense of the thing is to understand that at some point we will have such an intimacy with Christ that it's like a perfect intimacy between a husband and wife, if there could be such a thing. But marriage, by God's design, has the potential to be the most precious version of that we could ever hope to experience. And it does come sort of naturally and intentionally in married life as people because we intentionally try to grow an intimacy, but we also naturally grow an intimacy because a shared life is like that. Yeah. You know, and and so after you've lived together long enough, there are parts of you that wouldn't be complete without your partner, you know, without your spouse, because you're co-owning this life together. And so marriage really is a terrific expression of what Christ desires to have with each of us, which is that sort of co-ownership of the existence and to be incomplete without him and for him to be incomplete without me, which is inconceivable at this stage in my life, but that's the goal. And so it comes back to why would he ask me to have a relationship with somebody who's wronged me unless it's part of that process? He would ask me to have a relationship with somebody if, if in so doing, it increases the intimacy that I have with him or in some way benefits the intimacy that you have with him. So for your sake and for the sake of your relationship with Christ, he might ask me to engage in a particular kind of relationship with you. And if we happen to be enemies in some way, whether extreme or mild, then that is generative in some way and it's driven by the spirit which is all of this it seems really beautiful to me i i you know it's cool yeah and as you're talking i'm thinking too about my own relationship with christ and how i am such a flawed human being we all are right we all have sin and how many times have i just prayed to god like i am so sorry i messed up I messed up. Like, please forgive me. I just want to be close to you. I just want to know you better. And I think that's something important, too, when you're talking about interpersonal relationships with other people is mm. like, is that the model that's happening here? Is that their heart? Do they truly just love you and want to be near you, but they recognize that they messed up? We all do. And that's just part of being forgiving, graceful creatures, right? Mm -hmm. In Christ is saying, okay, like, I hear you. I, I hear your heart. I hear that you, you want to be better. You want to love me better. You want to be closer, you know, versus someone just being like, yeah, well, guess I goofed up. You know, like, that's totally different, right? When yeah. there's no repentance and there's like, well, yeah, I know I'm sorry. I know I've messed up, but eh. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I agree. Nice. I, you know, I do. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to what you said. I really liked when you talked about Jesus um, saying, dust your feet off and, and yeah. just leave the town. Because yeah. 
actually when that person was telling me that story that's that's what I thought of with Jesus I thought well that's what Jesus would say he would say dust your feet off um, and I'm glad that you brought that full circle for me because I, I was missing little bits and pieces of it but that was one that had stuck out to me mm. um, but I liked how you said that well for many reasons that they didn't like moon the people and right. then keep walking right? right and that's so metaphorical in our lives too because something that I've found is that when someone wrongs me, I have a tendency to immediately, one, be angry, right? Because we're human. And two, tell them how they wronged me. And yeah. and how that was, you know, you can't treat me like that and that's not okay and all of these things. And that would kind of be like mooning the people. Yeah. And being yeah. like, you know, throwing up the bird and and that sort of thing. But in his response, it was so, well self-controlled which is one of the points here on this list is it says christian insurgents exercise self-control in the face of provocation resisting the temptation to respond with anger or aggression he doesn't say throw tomatoes at him punch him in the face and then dust your feet off and walk away Mm -hmm. there's no anger there's no retaliation it's just move on move on and boy is that hard sure sure you know, most I know that we've t- talked about this. I know I've heard myself say this before on our podcast, but it comes back to this thing of you got to realize what's at stake, and it's always fear. Like, like what's at stake is this fear of something. Um, Again, I'm not satisfied with the way I'm expressing that, but what's at stake and what you fear are kind of the same thing in my mind. But what I get, I guess I'm trying to say is, is that, that if you want to understand what's at stake, you have to understand what the fear is. Like if I'm satisfied that this incident is over and done with, and I can dust it off my feet and move on, then it means that I don't have any fear associated. I haven't attached any fear to it. But if I still have fear attached to it, what is it I'm afraid of? Or what are they afraid of if they're not ready to let it go either? Um, You know, sometimes people just boil with rage and maybe that's it, you know, and it just has to simmer for a while. And, you know, when you turn off a boiling pot of water, you turn off the heat in a boiling pot of water, it doesn't immediately stop boiling. It has to cool slightly and begin to settle down. So I suppose there's a little bit of that when we're wounded or outraged by some injustice that's been done to us. And and it could be that in that moment, what we are feeling, the rage we're feeling is an expression of pain. You know, maybe you don't cry anymore because you're a grown-up, but you still get really ticked off. And it's kind of like crying, you know. Um, you know, I got a little two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old niece, a niece, grandchild. <laughs> wow, that's that's mind-boggling, isn't it? Anyway, this beautiful little grandchild is really quite a gem as, as kids go. You know, um, they did pretty good having their first child be a you know pretty well adjusted and easygoing kid. But hey, sometimes she just gets mad, and there's a limited range of expressions, so it's usually tears. You know, 
eventually we get more sophisticated and so we express ourselves in a more sophisticated way and then i think we get to this point in our lives where going to tears feels like a weakness or something else and then we're liable to react with rage or anger and and so we're feeling hurt by another person's actions and we express our pain with rage but then once we've let the rage and the pain settle down then we have to figure out how we're going to let this go and then it comes to what we're afraid of then it's a question of am i do i want to stay angry with this person because i want to make sure they never do this to me again i think that's what drives most of us is thinking you know the problem i'm having with you is is that it feels like our relationship will always be negative in this way and if it's going to be negative in this way i vote for not feeling the pain anymore you know and the best way to not feel the pain is to walk away see i'm really good at that you know if i have a human weakness that some people have interpreted as poor pastoring it's probably that i walk away from unproductive relationships i get to a point where i go nah this one's just always going to be frustrating and painful well, you know, sometimes that could be interpreted by the person, especially a church person, as the pastor giving up on them and sort of implying that they're unredeemable. And well, none of that's true. Yeah. It's just me saying, I no longer feel that I have the capacity to cope with you. <laughs> and, and I either need God to give me, you know, supernatural capacity, which sometimes happens, or you have to develop a different approach to me so that we can find a way to make a, a relationship work anyhow. I, I mean, all kinds of things can happen to redeem the relationship. But the reality is, is that we all develop these coping mechanisms for dealing with our fears and our pain. And pain and fear go hand in hand. I mean, like you, you step on a bee in the summertime when you're a little kid and get stung on the bottom of your foot then every time you go out barefoot you're afraid to run through the clover because there's always bees floating around on that cl clover yeah you know and and uh, so you know what made you afraid of the bees in the clover well just because it hurt the last time you stepped on one and you don't want to do that again and uh there was an old old joke in the old you know really old style of comedy where the guy says doc doc why it, it hurts every time i do this and the doc says well then don't do that you know like there's your cure right and and so we do that naturally we just have a tendency to avoid the things that we associate with past pain and obviously some people become very unhealthy in that way but for most of us it's it's a question of, of you know, because really what I'm describing is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Yeah. I'm basically saying you have to reason these things out. And the beautiful thing about being a Christian is, is that Christ invites you to reason it out with him. You know, why, why won't you go back to this relationship? And the Lord's answer is sometimes better for you to just dust your feet off and move away. Um, other times he has some divine purpose in making you come back to it you know i want you to walk barefoot through the clover in the summer because you need to understand 
that you can do that without stepping on a bee and it'll make your life a lot more fun and and you know it'll be okay you know it's like he's he's it's again it's about having faith in him having a relationship with him and um yeah i think that covers that i'm not sure yeah no that's so good um i'm i'm mentally stuck on this pot of water and I want to talk about it a little bit. Here's why I'm stuck on it. Because I think it's so important, just as a human being, much less a Christian, to recognize when you're almost at your boiling point. Mm-hmm. Like You talked about boiling and then turning it down just a little bit to where you're right before boiling. And I can identify times in my life where I can tell I'm so stressed and so tightly wound that the slightest little thing is just going to take me to boiling. Yeah. Like the tiniest little adjustment on the knob is just going to send me into a boil. And that's where you were talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's like that's where you got to have outlets for that. Mm-hmm. You got to have, you know, exercise or whatever it is in a healthy way. Um, to keep yourself from being at that boiling point because Jesus calls us to be self-controlled. Yeah. And if we have created lifestyles for ourselves that just bring us to the just below boiling point all the time, that's not really technically living in in the Christian way as Christ would. I mean, we hear all these stories of Christ and and he's patient and he's kind and he's compassionate and he cares for the wounded and all of these things. I mean, imagine if he filled his life with so many things that he didn't have time to heal the bleeding woman or or to stop and say, "Wait a minute. What's mm-hmm. going on here? I feel a change inside." You know? And so um I may have totally derailed our conversation there with that. I don't think so. I I was thinking, you know, um, we we must assume that the reason the gospel writers included the story of Jesus' outrage with the temple charlatans, you know, these, these people who were ripping off sincere pilgrims in the temple courts, you know, that that's why Jesus was mad because it was a mockery of their authentic worship and it was business you know and and jesus was outraged about that and we have to assume that if he was whipping people with cords and turning over tables he was having quite the tamper temper tantrum you know and yet an entirely righteous one mm-hmm. you know because we're absolutely convinced that he was without sin Otherwise, if we had what he if what had happened that day was somehow sinful, then everything he did for us on the cross would be null and void. It wouldn't have mattered. And the truth is, is we have this New Testament church era that we're living through that provides tons of evidence that he was successful in fulfilling his purpose on the cross. So that means you know, ergo, we get this evidence that says we get two thousand years of evidence that says he was without sin, even though he threw a temper tantrum in the temple courts that day. And if he got angry then, he probably got angry at other times too. And so our feelings aren't sinful, but more often than not, it it does look sinful when we are 
it, when it reflects a, a wrong attitude towards God. You know, sin is ultimately about our relationship with God. It seems like we keep coming back to that, right? You know, people need to recognize that God cares more about your personal relationship with God than he does about your relationship with other people, about your relationship with politics or your work or your church. Or he cares about your relationship with him. And our relationships with people and societal things can play a part in the expression of that relationship with him. But sin is basically losing sight of him either directly or indirectly because of our um, natural disobedience and sort of disrespect or disregard for God. Like, you know, like today I care. I, I, I'm getting tired of making traffic analogies over the years because, you know, I've noticed, I think like most people that you know, when I was learning to drive, it seemed like every time you turned around, there was cop with a speed gun or clock or stopwatch. That's how they used to do it back in the day, you know. Or, you know, they they really spent a lot of time trying to make sure everybody obeyed traffic laws. And these days, it's hard to tell that they are even out there, especially on the interstate. And so, when I'm driving down the interstate and I pass the sign, tells me how fast I should go, the limit. You know, don't go over this speed limit then I have a choice to make about that. And it's really frustrating when I choose to obey the law because it's the law. And then eight cars run up my bumper and then pass me, waving their fists at me because I'm not going 20 mile an hour over the speed limit like them. And I'm offended because they have no respect for the law and therefore no respect for other people because the law is designed to serve the common good right yeah. like yeah. traffic laws are the best way i know to interpret what that means most laws are designed so that everybody in society benefits from them and so we all agree that taking other people's stuff is not legal and therefore shouldn't happen we all agree that we should all drive within the limits that are placed by the government on the streets and the highways so that we are all assured of a fairly safe experience out there and then there are people that just don't think it applies to them. And it drives you crazy. And you want to shake your fist at them and everything else. And, and so at that point, we're close to understanding what it's like for Jesus in the temple marketplace. Because he's outraged by the absolute lack of respect for God. And the negative way that that disrespect for God impacts the people who are coming to show authentic respect for God. So it's like if Jesus were out there on the interstate with this, he'd be standing there having a bloody fit by all these people who are disregarding the speed limit and abusing you for trying to obey it. He'd be throwing a fit about that because he'd say, you you know, you know, you're you're turning the house of worship into a den of thieves, you know. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, it just means that when we're trying to work out our own emotions, when we're trying to work out why we reach our boiling point and what we do when we reach that boiling point. Well, you know, I I don't think I want to deal with this on the podcast, but I can tell you that I have an intimate understanding of certain aspects of mental health that make it difficult for you to self-regulate. You know, there, there are conditions that people have that make it hard for you to not become 
a little over the top because you're either exceedingly happy or you're exceedingly angry or you so you, you can have any emotion and then have it too much sure and then you can also have its counterpart too much so you can be very down or you can be very up you can be very angry or you can be very giddy you know and and so you say well okay i'm trying not to sin here but i'm not in control i i wish i could be in control i want to be in control you know yeah and and i think people who stress struggle with these kinds of things which i think is very common i you know as you've known me for the last few years you know several years now but you know in the last few years I've had a real passion for mental illness and mental health concerns. And that's multifaceted. It has to do with my own story, but it also has to do with with just the the unbelievable amount of dis-ease I see in people's lives. There's so many people out there who are not well. Mm-hmm. And for many of them, it's not like a... I mean, I really parallel, as I've matured in my understanding of these things, it's to me, it parallels just a typical doctor's office, you know, and I, I happen to have somebody in my family who's a general practitioner and I go to my own and, and, I, and I observe. And I realize that, that even though some people don't see what I mean by it, this church for me is like a clinic in a lot of ways. It's like a place where people come to be mentally and spiritually well. and it's like, well, I don't like going to the doctor's office because there ain't nothing but sick people there. Well, kind of goes with the territory. You know, I don't really want to be at the hospital. Everybody there's sick. Well, yeah, but there's also all the caregivers. Yeah. And there are other people who go to someone like you for physical therapy because they're on the mend. They're getting better and you're helping them recover and regain their vitality. And, and so there's all different levels of, of, of care that we can have for our bodies, but we need to do the same with our minds and with our spirits. And so the church becomes a place where you can care for the soul, where you can get therapeutic treatment for your soul. And sometimes you can get acute care and and even emergency care. And some people need major surgery, you know, and all of this is about spiritual well-being. And spiritual well-being and mental well-being are so intimately tied together that it's hard sometimes to tell one from the other. And so it goes back to your boiling pot, in my mind, it really does, that that what you're what you're you're saying is this, you know, to the extent that I'm in control of this discipline, I need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in order to regulate it so that I can glorify God and avoid sin. And at this point, you've been redeemed, so it's not that your sin is somehow going to stop you from being in God's grace, but it also belittles His grace, and it stops His grace from being more effective in your life. And you just like the idea that you could be better. You could be better for Him, and you could be better for the sake of those He loves, and yet he's still seeking you know and and so you do it all for love's sake but you know you have to work within the limits and and then you know if you're struggling against a particular um debility you know that prevents you from from being entirely at peace with the spiritual side of it you know you kind of have to say okay lord you know you're amazing because you make something out of nothing every day you know (laughs) 
he made you know what is the difference between the god who is the creator supreme being above all other gods all other creatures all it, it because he made it all from nothing he said let there be and there was and he does it every day he does it every day he takes a broken person and uses them as a vessel and for whatever could you imagine that I, this is a strange thing to say but can you imagine that you have a pitcher at home that you used to water your plants and it's got a great crack in it and yet for some reason every time you fill it up it doesn't leak hmm. <laughs> or to put that analogy in a better way it leaks all the time but when you use it to water a certain plant it never leaks as if God's saying when you're using your vessel for this your cracks don't matter hmm. you know <laughs> and and that's kind of what it means to be you know a broken wounded healer part of God's plan I guess so I don't know I, can, I, I really danced around the boiling water thing because I can't really figure that one out in my mind in a way that's satisfactory all I can say is is that when we're really overheated and angry we're not any good to anybody and sometimes the most generous thing you can do when you're in that frame of mind is separate yourself from people you might hurt and try to help them understand that it's because you love them that you're taking some time to cool off. Yeah. And I like that you went there too because uh, in, in my mind when I was speaking, I was thinking of just anger as being like something that we don't necessarily want to to show towards others. But then there's righteous anger yeah. too, right? Like Jesus in the temple. And uh, Moses, when he comes down from Mount Sinai and he just like breaks the tablets that God had just inscripted, you know, on them through him because they were worshiping a false god. Like there are times where righteous anger is appropriate, right? And so we're not really talking about those times. Yeah, you know, something but. funny, um, because I'm thinking about something we were talking about earlier today, that one of the hardest things for us Christians, I think, is to understand what healthy confrontation is like mm. right what many of us struggle with is this idea that confrontation is angry that confrontation is violent in some way and the truth is confrontation is walking up to somebody or something and saying one of us has got to back away here one of us has got to make a change and, and feeling certain that in that moment you have a responsibility to confront what must, what must be dealt with, right? And in church, we're so afraid of confrontation that we become actually very counterproductive because we tolerate all kinds of things. And it doesn't take long before the church becomes so watered down because all we want to do is be the place where everybody's nice. Mm. which isn't to say that we should always be confronting each other it just means that in normal relationships there are times when you find yourself in need of cooperation from another person and you say to them you know I can't be at peace while you're doing this and I need for us to work out some kind of way where we're both at peace again you know 
what, what is that going to look like? I mean, that's confrontation, but handled well. It's nonviolent confrontation. It's mutually beneficial confrontation. So what I can't get over is how the church has been convinced by God's enemy that any kind of conflict or confrontation in the church is somehow sinful and wrong. And what's really amazing is how effective the enemy is, is at using people who are either not Christian believers or who are maybe just unhealthy to perpetuate the idea that any kind of conflict or confrontation is evil. And therefore I'm going to do whatever I want, say whatever I want, and you can't react because if you do, that means you're failing as a Christian, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's tricky. It really is. But I think that sometimes the most Christian and loving thing we can do is let Jesus tear through our temple market and tear some things down and whip a few people. You know, that that's the most loving thing you do. You know, we'll never know. There's so many stories in the Bible and, and stories about Jesus in particular where they're left kind of open-ended and we never really know what happened next. But sometimes we kind of like to know. And we've talked about The Chosen just about every episode. <laughs> and, and you know, in The Chosen, they do a pretty good job of, of speculating about what happened next. But like, what happens after Jesus tears through the temple market? Do you think some of those people said, this is outrageous, this is unacceptable, and they ran to the Sanhedrin or they ran to Pontius Pilate, probably not Pilate, but they they ran to to, um, uh, Annas the high priest or they went to Caiaphas' office and registered a complaint and this was all part of the reason that the, the they eventually murdered Jesus, right? You know, yeah, that's the part we easily imagine. But what we can't imagine is, is that there were probably people there who were really convicted by his actions. People there who were going, you know, he's right. Mm. We started out innocently enough, and, and then we worked out a bulk deal with this market, other guy in the marketplace where he said, you know, if you bring all the xyz that you can get and i bring all of the abc that i can get we'll exchange it and we'll both end up with a better deal and that way when people come to the marketplace we get a higher profit margin and that means we can give our food you know more food to our families and it all seems very innocent but it gradually declines into this very worldly um flesh feeding sort of egocentric sort of behavior that dishonors God and you need the son of God to come through and sort of kick your table over in front of you to get your attention and then say to you, this is not right, you know? And and so we don't know that people weren't convicted by what he said and never abused people in the marketplace again after that because it wasn't the worship that was bad. It was the way that they were taking advantage of people and mechanizing the worship into something meaningless. And who hasn't seen that, you know? You and I often talk about our upbringing and, and, and you know, how we watch people. And it happens in Methodist church too, but when you're in a tradition that's very mechanized, it's easy to see how people can become so uh, caught up in the habits that they totally do it with no meaning or, or vitality whatsoever. So that relationship with Christ, that is the thing that relationship with God that this is always all about is virtually non-existent because you you developed a relationship with a series of habits. And that's basically the temple marketplace scenario. 
Mm-hmm. You know, this is a business. Like, hey, you know, you guys, uh, look, you know, if you if you buy your doves from me, you'll have some money left over for Pizza Hut on your way back to your village and, you know, on your way home from Temple. As though it's just a thing, you know, that doesn't really mean anything. And God said, I didn't establish these behaviors because I wanted you to become habitually addicted to these behaviors. I wanted you to have a relationship with me. I wanted you to be addicted to me, mm. you know. And and so that's the heart of Jesus' righteous indignation. So there's place for that. And I think like some of the things I'm going through right now where I, I feel like, you know, and these, these things happen, by the way. And the older I get, the better I'm at, I am at dealing with them. But you get to these places in your life where you have to say, I'm going to have to take a stand. You know, and, and boy, for the longest time, I tried so hard to avoid anything confrontational. I mean, I spent a lot of time, you know, because when I was in my life before I got into ministry, I sold things. And, and you know, I tried I tried to soothe people over who were angry about, you know, our, our business not being done in the best way for them. And, you know, angry customers are part of sales, right? But, you know... I guess I hoped when I got into ministry, I wouldn't be dealing with angry customers. It turns out I'm still dealing with angry customers. They they are ornery and angry in church, just like they are in the trucking industry. And it turns out that every time you deal with people, you're going to deal with ornery people or people who have different ideas about what they should expect from the relationship we have with each other, even if it's a professional relationship. And uh, no doubt in your therapy work, you've got people that are ticked off about their process and they let you hear about it. And others who are just so grateful for the care you give them. And they're both equally valuable to you, but some are more fun. Yeah, you know, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and I think in church it's the same way. And maybe even Jesus says, yeah, I don't much care for going to the temple. I always get so frustrated up there, you know, but I really like it down here by the pool of whatever because, you know, these people are really hurting, and I can do some good down here, you know. So he's he's like us. Yeah, he is like us. Um, struggling with words here, um, but imagine that me struggling with words, crazy. Yeah. Um, I just really like the last few sentences of these sermon notes and I thought it would be a nice place to end um, we've been talking about confrontation and all these things which is so great to hash out I think this has been a great episode of just kind of real world like trying to figure it out you mm-hmm. know I think Christians falsely sometimes put on this illusion of having their life together and mm-hmm. being nice and kind and all these things but like man we're human we, we just we just seek God we just want to be we just want to be close to him. We just want to be near him. Um, and I find that through Shiloh Church. And mm-hmm. I think that's how Christians should dwell is together and seeking God together. And that's all what these last few sentences say. Um, so I'm just going to read it and then I think we'll end there for today. If that's okay. Yep. So it says, recognizing the strength and unity, Christian insurgents foster cooperation among believers. They work together, regardless of differences, to form a united front against the forces of darkness. This collaborative effort magnifies the impact of their insurgents, creating a formidable force grounded in the principles of faith, love, and solidarity. 
their tactics rooted in grace, gentleness, self-control, and other divine virtues not only withstand the onslaught of the enemy, but also illuminate a path to redemption and salvation for those ensnared by the forces of darkness. Hmm. Dang, that's good. Wish I'd have written that. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) But that's what it should be. So... Well, I, I appreciate your your uh, encouragement. And, you know, I don't have anything to add to that. I guess it's pretty well said, you know. But, uh, folks, I, it did occur to me, though, that if you want to read these sermon notes, I guess we could start attaching them to the podcast show. But here's something you could also do. Um, it just so happens that we have a brand new altogether new web page and app for Shiloh Church. And so if you go to the App Store, um, and we also have a, a Roku and Amazon app, as well as the Google Play Store and the Apple uh, iTunes Store. Basically, if you um, download the Shiloh app, just look for Shiloh Jasper, maybe type in Shiloh Jasper, Indiana, you know, but you'll find it. And it's got our little blue and gray cross um, that will help you know you got the right one. Um, you can listen to all these podcasts and look at the notes while you're listening. It's all there in the app. It's really helpful. The app is configured not only for your phone, but it's also for tablets. And you can also web- go to the web page. And everything that's in the app is also available on our web page. So, you know, we hope you check it out. It's shilohjasper.org as the web page. And the app's in the App Store, Shiloh Jasper, Indiana. And uh, it's a really good way for you to connect with us. And uh, and once again, if you're a subscriber or a listener from outside the United States, we'd love to hear from you just to see if you're really there because, you know, the Google Analytics tells us that you live in Germany or India or South America or something like that, but we don't know that it's true. We assume it is. And uh, so it'd be great to hear from you. You know, even if all you say is in the comments, hello from Brazil, or let's see, I don't know how to say that in Portuguese. Um, Bom dia, I think. Good day. Bom dia. No idea. We'll try that. I'm one see, of those losers. If you're in Brazil, you write me and say, you said that wrong. There you go. You know, but we'd like to hear from you. So anyway, thank you all very much. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.